And uh, Joel, moving on, our next guest is uh, a man who's become an absolute cult hero on this show. His, um, uh, his tenacity and fighting spirit on court is something that we absolutely loved. We loved watching him play over the last decade. He's a former ATP world number 39. He's uh, been as uh, an ATP finalist at Delray Beach in 2012. Also that year was the ATP most improved player of the year and also an Australian representative at the Davis Cup jacket number 101. The most underrated career of the millennium, I think. It doesn't get talked about enough, but uh, his name is Marinko Matosevic and he joins us on the line from the Liga Tennis Academy in Bali. Marinko, thanks so much for joining us. How are you going? Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, going pretty good. Uh, everything is okay here. Pretty free here. I can do everything I want except go to the beach. Beautiful. Well, yeah, it's um, yeah, at least you got a bit more freedom over there than what we do here in Melbourne. It's pretty. Um, it's pretty. Uh, it's like we're all locked up here. So you're very lucky in that sense. But those numbers that I just read out, Marinko, you must look back on that so fondly and uh, and reflect so well on your career. What stands out the most for you? Um. Well. I have like a few regrets. I think I could have done uh, better earlier, but I didn't really um, have the guidance until I met Todd Woodbridge in 2009. And uh, once I met him, my career just went up and up. I kept on improving every year. But um, uh, what stands out for me? I don't know. Uh, making uh, finishing number one in Australia, um, getting to 39, even though I think I could have done better. And uh, yeah, just like a, my time on tour with a lot of great wins and. Um, yeah, just uh, live the dream, basically. It's all I wanted to be a, do was be a tennis player since I was 13, 14, so, and, I, and I got to do it, so pretty happy about it. And you mentioned Todd Woodbridge earlier on. What, what exactly were, were those early meetings like, and what did he say to you? What guidance did he give you um, in regards to your career and your performance? Well, I got to, like, uh, basically 170 in the world, just basically uh, uh, travelling with uh, you know, Nick Lindahl and Colin Ebelthide. Uh, not didn't have a coach... Like, I had a coach always with me from 18 and until, like, uh, 20, 21, but then it got too expensive. And then when, when I started traveling, like, more and more throughout the year, playing 25, 30 weeks, it just wasn't possible with a coach. And then once I met Todd, um, you know, I learned how to be, a, you know, I wasn't a real professional, like, uh, to be honest, you know. Like, after I'd lose, I'd go out and stuff, you know, just uh, my training uh, schedule wasn't right. Like, just, I was doing lots of things wrong basically. Thanks for coming on the show uh, again, Marinko, as uh, Val said. It's great to have you on. Um, I think it's fair to say that probably the, the peak of your career came about in 2012, 2013. Um, what, what, was, uh, what, was, what were things like for you around, uh, around that point um, and, and uh, all the things you achieved in, in that part of your career? Um, yeah, um, I started to, and then, and that was the after, I mean, 2012, I finished uh, top 50 for the first time, got most improved player. Um, I didn't really have any, let's say, big wins, and I had to play well to get my wins. I had to play good. And then once I started working with, uh, who I already worked with, Mark Woodford, the other half of the Woodies, I uh, worked with him in 2011, but I had to um, share him with Matt Ebden, and, you know, um, that wasn't very fun for me or Mark, uh, sharing him with Matt Ebden. There was, like, a few problems always, and we don't get along that well. And then once I had Mark Woodford, um, 2013 101, I started to you know win matches, not playing good, added more strings to my bow, and I and I became a much better player. I probably made my best results in 2013 quarterfinals of a Master Series in Canada, and then but in 2014 and 15, I would 
say I was playing even better, I had better wins in 2014, you know, I'd beat guys like Tillich, Vadasco, Tonga, Isna, so I was probably better playing in 2014 and 15, I would say. Well, you mentioned that winning or the quarterfinal performance in uh, in Montreal back in 2014. Yeah. That was an unbelievable week. You beat some really good players. And what was it like sort of progressing through to the deep end of a, of a Masters 1000 and then taking on the eventual champion, Rafael Nadal? How was it How was it facing up against Nadal and sort of and, and the intensity that he brings to the court? Um, well, uh, th- those results came at the back end of some personal problems that I had. Um, you know, I wanted to go home. Uh, Mark Woodford uh, talked me into staying, and then we just felt I like all I did was uh, do gym, hit the court. We trained really hard, and actually had a really good week in Washington. Where I beat James Blake, Davidenko, Milos Raonic, and then didn't even have to think about it. I had to go play qualies in that Masters, and then beat like Tommy Haas, Benoit Paire, Benjamin Becker. It was just like uh, two really amazing weeks. And then uh, playing Nadal, I actually already played him in Monte Carlo, uh, the match where I kicked over his water bottles. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, yeah, when he shanked the pass, when he shanked the pass, and uh, I, actually, I actually won $100 of Ter- Dimitri Tursa, who bet me I wouldn't do it. So that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the real reason I did it, you know, for 100 bucks. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. That is. I was actually going to ask you about that, so I'm glad you spoke about it. But um, mentioning uh, your 2014 year, it was also a really special back to the clay when you um, won your first Grand Slam main draw match in your 13th yeah. attempt. It would have been a lot of relief. And uh, you played against Dustin Brown, who's enigmatic at his best, and to get yeah. through in four sets. And then your celebration where you rolled on the ground about uh, five or six times. What, what, what was the feeling um, after that? Oh, well, that... Uh, that terrible Grand Slam record that I had early on it just uh, I should have won my first ever one in 2010 Aussie Open where like had set points in the first set didn't get a second set of chances won the third had like three one up in the fourth I really should have won my first one against Marco Cidinelli Federer's best friend anyway uh, didn't have the experience then then it got really bad I came up with some tough draws mm. against some uh, good players and then one or two times I didn't take my chance, like against Guillermo Rufin or Barankas lost. And then uh, it just became psychological, you know, like uh, I got to 39 in the world making quarters of a Masters series and stuff, but hadn't won a sl- match at a slam. It was like getting ridiculous, you know, and there was guys like making third, fourth round that hadn't even made top 100. And then uh, I became mental, you know, every time the slam came around, it was in my mind, people were writing about it, people were mentioning it. And then... Uh, in that match, I was two sets to love up, actually, and a break even, maybe. And he won. The thirds came back and it was 5-1 up in the fourth. So yeah. uh, lots of people don't know he was 5-1 up in the fourth. And I'm like, I just like just said to myself, okay, uh, you just got to go for it. It's, you know, it's uh, now or never. And I won six games in a row. So against Dustin Brown, you know, yeah. with his serve, he's been in rough he's been an amazing player. So to win six games in a row, and I'm just like, it was just huge relief when he double faulted. So I just... I didn't know what to do, so I just it was just spontaneous. I just rolled to the net. Oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> One of the things that's come up um, in our most recent show that we did, Marinko, was uh, we were talking a bit about the I guess the well-ranked players in, in the circuit, and um, yep. there's been the news about the the fund as well that the players are, are looking um, to put together, where um, I guess the the top echelon of players will chip in some money, and then it yep. kind of trickles down. Um, from there, and you know, you've seen a lot of um, a, a lot of the tour and a lot of the sort of the, the toiling that you have to do to get yeah. to where um, you got to go. Um, I guess, what, what are your thoughts on um, how 
um, the, the tour, um, the ATP and, and the WTA, I guess, and you know the the ATP and the WTA themselves and the ITF even. How can they um, uh, support the the lower ranked players and really get them through what's going on at the moment? Um, well, it's pretty simple. Uh, the prize money is too top heavy. Um, you know, like it, it's 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 got to be more spread out. You know, it doesn't need to be Australian Open four dollars for the four million dollars. Uh, you know, for the winner. I mean, uh, you just have to look at the other sports, how much their guys, that 200th best football players or basketball players are getting. I mean, tennis, it's it's not even close. It just has to be... Uh, but, but, but tournaments, this is where the tournaments, they they want to break the records, prize money records for the winner and this stuff, and they, like, compete against each other uh, instead of just uh, even, evenly distributing it. Um, and then um, I've got very strong views. I, heard, I just read something that Federer wants to combine the tours terrible idea you know 20 years ago at the early 2000s there was no combined atp and w events um and now they're combining more and more in the last you know 10 years it's a terrible idea the two tours should be separate you know men's tennis um brings in all the money basically besides like serena williams or marie sharapova so it's a terrible idea it shouldn't happen and um and I think it's one of the reasons there's been uh, not as much of an increase on the ATP tour because uh, we've had to share with the WTA. So uh, just they just got to even it out more from yeah. from the qualifying, you know, not not just you know from the main draw from the qualifying. Can you give us a bit of an insight um, into what it was like for for you going around in those um, I suppose those more obscure locations that yep. you had to go? I can like. I never, I never did. Uh, I never went to weak places to play. Uh, so from eighteen, all those from I don't know. I only played in Australia, Asia, Europe, and America. I never went points hunting like uh, I don't know in the early days of the AIS when uh, uh, Brent Larkham had it. I mean, he was sending. Was, I call well, there was a joke. It was a third world tour. He was sending all the Australian players <laughs> you know, to all these uh, parts of the world. There, no one goes to so Australian players to get up points, you know, when Australian tennis was really struggling in the late uh, noughties. And then, uh, yeah, it's it's tough. It honestly is, you know, you've got to start with futures qualifying. If you're not a top junior, you've got to start with futures qualifying. You lose there, it's no prize money. Um, and then the futures, there's hardly any money in futures. Um, it's really tough. You're sharing rooms, uh, you're sharing a coach. Uh, there's no chance for if you know, like later in my career, I had a physical trainer always trouble with me. And there's no chance of that, you know. Um, uh, it, it's really tough. And then, you know, you're doing everything your own if no one's sponsoring you. Um, yeah, it's just really tough. Uh, you know, the higher up you get, it's kind of not fair. You get, you know, deals thrown at you at the top level. They're picking you up in nice cars, they're taking everywhere, free food. Well, it's the opposite in futures. You've got to basically uh, do everything yourself, you know, everything. So um, there was a lot, lots of tough times, you know, sharing a room with like four or five guys, uh, not eating right, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I lost money for the first uh, three years on tour. You know, I was definitely in a, in a big minus. Three, four years I lost money uh, in a big minus and uh, i got to really thank my parents and then uh, had like one little sponsor guy sponsoring me. So, yeah. Yeah, and a, a lot of players, including John Millman, he said that, you know, why is it taken until a global pandemic for all of this to be highlighted? And um, what would you recommend for all of the governing bodies, the ITF, ATP and WTA to do? Would you recommend them sit down and work out a plan to to sort of make that top heavy funding sort of treacle a little bit higher for the lower ranked players? 
I mean, uh, they just tried something last year with that separate ITF tour, but that was a terrible mm. idea, you know, so terrible. Like, uh, there Didn't was no work incentive. at all. No, it was um, because, like, you know, I think uh, someone from the ATP, like, made a mistake or someone from the ITF. You never know what's, like, really going on. People are just, you know, looking after their own interests. But, yeah, they got, they're all going to sit down together, obviously, and work out a better system. And um, But, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the top players. It's the big stars that have to. Unfortunately, I know they, they've got their own interests. They're busy as well. Um, pro- probably it's the last thing they want to encounter with. But, you know, it's really the top stars that drive everything in, in tennis, especially, you know, Federer and Nadal Djokovic. They've got to sit down and... Um, and just work out a fair system. I don't know. I, I wouldn't take too long, but, you know, uh, we'll see if it gets done. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult situation that, that players find themselves in. You mentioned those top players, and you played against yeah. Nadal, you played against Murray, you played against Federer, and the one I wanted to bring up sort of to change direction a little bit yeah. is your encounter with Federer at the US Open in 2014 when yeah. you had a certain Michael Jordan watching you play, and um, <laughs> yeah. uh, during the match you said, um, I just want to be like Mike, and then ended up meeting him after the match. And um, yeah. what was it like to play in front of, because I've read that you're a massive basketball fan, what was it like to play in front of the great man, and... Um, uh, what did you say to him after the match? So um, there was there was rumors, you know, he doesn't make too many public appearances. There was rumors he was coming uh, to watch uh, Federer, and uh, they were doing a shoot collaboration. Yeah. But you know, but no, no one could say for sure, you know. And then um, I was playing the match. I already played Roger. I lost to him easy in Brisbane in quarterfinals Friday night in a big prime time match in Australia. And then uh, I was playing pretty well. And then uh, I was down two sets to love. I don't know six four six three, and I was down a break, right? And so your mind wanders a little bit, you know, you've been out there about two hours, and I just look around, I look to Federer's box, and I see Michael Jordan, I'm like, oh, no <laughs> way, you know, and uh, and then I'm like, all right, I had to do a double take, anyway, I won the juice point, I go to his side, and I look up, and it's, I'm like, fuck, it's really him, you know, <laughs> and and uh, I just said, uh, you know, I want to be like Mike, and, uh, and you know, he gave me, like, a look, and then the crowd did a huge, like, you know, round of applause, which uh, I think disturbed Federer. And uh, I broke back and took it to a tiebreak. I actually led 4-1 in the tiebreak, didn't get it. Uh, he won the match. But then after in the locker room, um, yeah, in the, the locker room, got to meet him. And he was like so nice. He's like, I liked your hustle out there, man. Uh, keep fighting, keep going. And then um, the coolest part was probably at the end after I showered, uh, did all my stuff. Uh, was going was going home from the players where you leave with the courtesy cars. And it was about all these like 500 people waiting for him. Yeah. As he was leaving into his limousine, and uh, you know, on the way out, he just shook my hand and says good luck and uh, wish you all the best, and just went into the limo, and uh, and it was a real surreal experience. Got to meet one of the greatest athletes of all time. They call it the uh, the World Cup of tennis, of course, as I'm sure you do. Uh, you know all too well, Marinko, and uh, you have represented um, Australia in the Davis Cup team, yeah. as Val said. Um, can you take us through some of your your best memories um, putting on the on the green and gold on the court? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, re- I really loved uh, Davis Cup and playing for Australia. Um, the first time I was Orange Boy, I uh, wasn't as enjoyable. Uh, John Fitzgerald was the captain, and uh, I don't know, he's not the most inspiring leader, in my opinion. Um, and then uh, and then once Rafter came in, uh, it was a bit better. But, um, yeah, the, the, my, my, my favourite part was working with Tony Roach when... When he came in, when Rafter came in, that was the best part about Pat coming in. Was working with Tony Roach. I uh, loved every 
all the sessions with him. I did Indian Wells in Miami, just one-on-one with him. And um, in regards to Davis Cup, probably my first uh, tie, I, I probably wasn't ready. I was like 120, 130 in the world. And, uh, you know, Australia was really struggling in those times. We had Leighton, uh, Tomich, myself, Guccioni. Uh, but, you know, we were always in like a zonal qualifying or playoff. Uh, but just uh, the, the coolest part was like before the matches, you know, you do that Nationals anthem. Uh, that was pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, receiving my jacket 101 was pretty cool, to, you know. Um, and then uh, what else can I say about it? I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just really different to play for your country um, and uh, not for yourself. And I uh, just love being around the guys and uh, learn, learn so much, you know, from the guys, especially from Rochi and Leighton. Do you think there does need to be more team tennis around the world? Uh, I know Kyrgios thinks so. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one because it's an individual sport, and um, I mean, I mean, I don't know how I feel about the Davis Cup changing. There's uh, pros and cons to both. I know the top guys weren't playing, so in, in, and it needed a change. It's dying. Every country was losing money, but then I get the other side of it changing. You know, you lost all that tradition and the history of it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just depend. It just depends uh, how you can structure other teams, team competitions around it. But yeah, it was it was an amazing time. As you said, Marinko, you spent a lot of time around a lot of uh, legends of Australian tennis. Yeah, and, um, you have gone into coaching now, as um, as yeah. I said, off the top in, in Indonesia. So I guess this one's a bit of a, a two prong question. Did you yeah. was it always the plan for you to, to go into coaching? And um, I guess by extension, how did you find your way over to Bali? Well. Uh, I'll answer that last one first. I just wanted to basically um, live where every, every, everyone holidays, a place I loved. You know, I loved uh, uh, Bali, like the energy here, the people. Um, I've been vegan since 2017, so it's like a ve- the best place for vegans probably. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I just love the energy here. And then, um, yeah, just uh, got lucky that this uh, – tennis center was like uh, just finished building before like because i did it one and a half years i just traveled the world you know with my girlfriend um uh, just traveled the world doing nothing you know and i was like oh, it's, the day started to get boring you know i was like oh what i want to do you know it's so a year and a half you know i was just traveling and then i was like no nah, you know i'm not don't really want to go into real estate or some businesses you know i'm not really passionate about that you know the only thing i've known all my life is tennis i want to get into tennis and just got uh, really lucky with the Liga Tennis Academy here. And then the, the, the first part of the question, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like, with coaching, um, I had unbelievable, like, people help me. Like, some of the best, some people say Darren Cahill is, like, the best coach in the world. You know, I've worked, he's helped me a little bit. I have conversations about him. Obviously, two huge tennis minds that the biggest impact to my career, Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodfed, had Tony Roach. You know, Davis Cup, one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach with his resume, had Leighton Hewitt helping me, Pat Rafter. So, I mean, uh, just, yeah, I've been really uh, lucky in that sense. And I feel like all the knowledge that I've gotten from all those Aussie legends and world tennis legends, most of them in the Tennis Hall of Fame, like, I can pass on um, to people. So, like, my strength is not that I got to, like, let's say, 39 the world. I know the pathways to get to top 40 it's like that i've worked with these amazing coaches in my in my i've been so lucky in my uh, career we had um mark zafoulis on uh, a couple of days on our last show and he was talking yeah. about his coaching philosophy and and yeah. how he loves to get the best out of people and and w- what would your coaching philosophy philosophy be and how, uh, what advice do you give to your pupils um 
well, it's a, it's a tough one. I guess uh, what all my players, I want them to play like the the Australian way of playing tennis, which is attacking tennis, you know. But that doesn't mean just rushing forward to the net and serve volleying all the time. It means you know being able to play on the baseline, ag- aggressive defense or attacking baseline, and then be able to finish points at the net. You know, I really believe. Uh, the, uh, the Australian way of playing is being lost a little bit and that's uh, the message I got from all the guys I just mentioned, all the Aussie legends that I mentioned before, it's being lost. And, you know, I want all, I want all of my players to be able to play at the backcourt and the forecourt. With, but the three things I focus on mo- mostly, the most important things I ten- in, in believe in tennis is serve, return and forehand. So they're the three biggest focus that I, I work on. Moving just back to the um, to the career, Marinko. Uh, just yep. a quick one. We want to ask you just a couple of quick fire questions. Um, yeah. Your best win. Ah, that's a tough one. Probably uh, I don't know Tsilich or Tsonga yep. at uh, Queens. What, what, what was the strangest place that you've visited, Marinko? Because we hear all about the the weird places that people yep. go to. But um, what was the strangest one that you had had to go to? Uh, definitely a place called you've never heard of Namangan. We went to play Davis Cup there against Uzbekistan. Uh, the place was an absolute shithole. <laughs> we, we we had to we had to fly fly a private jet from Dubai to this place in Namangan. It was close to the Afghanistan border. We brought our own chef. We brought our own food. Um, and the I don't know how the ITF approved this hotel. It's, it's I think for Davis Cup you have to have a four or five star hotel in this place. Uh, you wouldn't give it any. You wouldn't give it any stars in Davis Cup. Like Leighton Hewitt, Tommy and me, we were, sh- we were showering with bottled water. Oh my god! Gosh. I've heard bad things water. about Uzbekistan from um, from Sam Groth. He said some shocking things about the place. So yeah, so uh, yeah, Namangan where we played Davis Cup. Bloody yeah, hell! Absolute shithole, shithole. Oh jeez! Now before we let you go, Marinko, we just yeah. have to ask you about this. There was a, a great photo that I think Ben Rothenberg. Put up on his Twitter feed, and it was you of, of you with uh, a cap on your head in a very uh, odd position. I think it was it was uh, sideways. Yeah, uh, is, is that always been, a, I guess, a bit of a, a, a thing for you, or was it just kind of one of those spontaneous things? Because it really did take uh, social media by storm at the time. Uh, no, I've always uh, Tony Roach does as well. I always uh, pointed that if I, if I wore a hat, I pointed it to uh, where the sun was. You know that way. <laughs> didn't wear a straightways and um, that hat was a president uh, from someone from the Boston Celtics I did an interview I think in Miami or something where I said I like I love the Boston so I go for Boston in all the sports and uh, they sent me a Boston Red Sox hat with my name on it so which is pretty cool so I thought I'd, I'd wear it while I met uh, MJ that's brilliant mate that's um, it's been a wonderful career for yourself and um, the fact that you're coaching and passing your knowledge on to students and other people is just wonderful and as I said at the start it's one of the most underrated careers that we've seen you definitely don't get um, the recognition that you deserve it's been it's been brilliant and thank you for sharing some of your stories with us on the show today it's been an absolute pleasure Marinko Matosovic thank you very much for being on Breakpoint. thanks guys.